Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 201 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And we are especially excited to be joined by our guest today, uh, Beatrice Adler-Bolton and Artie Virkant, the co-host of the wonderful podcast, Death Panel, and also the co-authors of the very, very, very excellent book, Health Communism. Listeners of TMK will know I've been talking about this book on episodes um, for the past month or two, uh, applying some of its concepts and stuff, uh, rolling that into our ongoing analysis of tech. And so um, I'm, I'm very happy to be joined by, by Artie and B today to, to actually talk about the book. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. It's so awesome to be here. Yeah, very glad to be here. Yeah, um, uh, there's a lot to get into. The book does a lot of things very well. Uh, it's also it, I, I'm, I've, a number of, uh, uh, of books that we've been covering on the podcast, like um, our, our friend of the show, Dan McQuillan's book on resisting AI, your book does is also structurally something I'm, I'm very, very happy to see more of, which is uh, these like sub 200 page, essentially very long essays that are just like (laughs) one continual argument presenting one big analysis or one big idea um, and and kind of sustaining that and then not overstaying its welcome, but doing that really well. And your book absolutely falls into that. I was saying before we started recording that I read it over a weekend because I just couldn't put it down. Well, I fucking love hearing that, to be honest. Thank you so much. It's it's great to know that people actually read the whole thing, as well, I was saying. Yeah. Also, stylistically, that's very intentional. I feel like it's become, it, like, it's no longer, uh, I don't know, uh, in vogue or something. It's, like, no longer au courant to, like, write a book that is kind of just a big sort of pseudo-intellectual, but not entirely, you know, laden exclusively with just being in academia and kind of like stylistic, just invective over, you know, as you said, like just under 200 pages. Um, it's like, so yeah, that's very much, uh, one of the things that we wanted to try and do with it. Yeah. I I mean, it's, it's, uh, the way we're going to uh, structure this, I'll just I'll just peel back the curtain a little bit for listeners, is that there, you guys introduce and apply and illustrate a number of really useful concepts for understanding and analyzing the political economy of health under both capitalism and what health should be under communism or a form of health communism. And, and so you get into a lot of really great concepts. And so we're, we're just going to talk through a number of these concepts. But before we, before we do that, I want to take a host prerogative here and actually just read a paragraph from like the last chapter or the last page of the book. We're going to go to the end of the book before we circle back around to the beginning, because I think this, this, this paragraph not only sums up a lot of the really crucial argument that you spend the book kind of leading up to and, and analyzing, but it's also just frankly one of the, the best paragraphs I've, I've read um, in a while. And, and when I was tweeting about the book while reading it, I posted this one and it got a lot of traction. A lot, I, think, I think I might have sold a few copies on the strength on the back <laughs> of this paragraph alone uh, because it's just that good. So I'm just, I'm just going to do it now. It is not necessarily the case that we are all sick. 
but none of us as well. The truth of the distinction that capitalist states draw on their demarcations of worker slash surplus is that in the eyes of capital, we are all surplus. That we must center the surplus in our political projects and demands is therefore not simply to say, celebrate the surplus. It is to show that the capacities of immiseration, the processes of extractive abandonment that play out insistently and invariably on the surplus populations is not merely the fuel for capital, but it is the fate of us all. We are each of us ripped and maimed, strangled and buried by capital in one way or another. That entire industries exist in plain sight to see us along this vast process of endlessly iterative life chances, to then subject us to extraction when we are surplus and no longer of use, and to eke out slivers of profit from our eventual deaths, is capital's greatest sleight of hand. We are all surplus. There's a lot there, and I think we could do the whole podcast, and we might just unpacking what <laughs> you know that argument encapsulated in that paragraph. the The subtitle of your book is a surplus manifesto, so maybe we should start there. What do you mean by none of by we are all sick and we are all surplus? Well, so there's a kind of traditional way of understanding the surplus population, which is as um, maybe as the kind of surplus reserve army, if you're thinking about classical Marxism, which is really talking about people who are unemployed, who could be uh, employed in order to maybe keep wages down or um, who, are, who are sort of waiting in the wings. But there's actually a broader use of the term surplus to apply to, you know, populations that have essentially been deemed as waste by capitalism, um, but not just, you know, capitalism specifically, but other types of political economy where, you know, it's people who are non-working, people who are disabled, who are mad, who are ill or sick in some way, non-productive. And so what we're trying to do is sort of push this broader understanding of surplus, which is usually a, uh, a negative term, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's describing people that, you know, are in essence considered non-important or non-essential to the economy in some capacity. And so what we try and do in the book is, is show just how, just how wrong that idea is, that, that the surplus population is somehow without the economy or without society. And what we're pointing to is actually a much bigger conception of the surplus even than um, sort of has been attempted before. Because if we think about surplus as uh, a group of people who are maybe non-workers, maybe people like myself who are disabled, who um, maybe are older and live in nursing homes, long-term care facilities, or they're, you know, outside of the traditional economy being paid under the table, doing gig work, you know, the idea of who is surplus is more contingent on who is sort of facing the most precarity economically and who is sort of left behind when the economy moves on. Um, and the economy moves on with without many of us, whether we're employed or not. And so what we're really pushing for is for people to understand that 
part of the idea of the surplus population is not just the people who are surplus now, but it's the people who will become surplus. The threat of the surplus and the precarity of people in the surplus population in and of itself is one of the fundamental drivers of all labor discipline. So if we are to sort of see ourselves as being not surplus because we are workers, right? That's that's a kind of conceptualization of surplus that's like the old way of doing it. And so what we hope people who are engaging with the book can sort of understand is that, you know, this isn't a book about other people. You know, maybe you're a worker, but this isn't about some other people elsewhere. This is also about you because it, everyone, you know, if you're lucky enough, you will become surplus one day. Some people don't have the luck to ever become surplus, which, you know, not everyone has the chance to sort of uh, age or um, become disabled. Many people are killed or die um, or, you know, die as a result of slow death or extraction before they ever get a chance to become surplus. And this is something that I think, you know, is really important to understand both in the context of COVID and the way that that has changed labor precarity, um, but also in the things that have been happening in our labor economy for, you know, decades in terms of just the increasing precarity of work, the shrinking of the welfare state and, the fact that, you know, these disposable populations, which we sort of think of as disposable, have actually become these incredible centers where profit passes through people. Um, but they're not necessarily uh, considered to be adding to the sort of economy or growth of, of society in any capacity. Well, because, and if I can um, jump jump in here too, in a, in a maybe slightly less... Um, you know, uh, jargony or abstract way to it's sort of the, um, there are all of these ways, right. If you just think about the term, like a productive member of society or something like that, there are all these ways that we sort, um, whether it's through conceptions of, um, good or ill health, um, you know, uh, being sane or mad, um, normative or non-normative in some capacity, um, able-bodied or disabled. There are all these ways that we sort of sort who is who qualifies as a um, productive member of society, and a lot of the and and, and thus also sorry, not to um, not to make that not to allow that to be sort of subtextual, like a productive member of society in the sense in the sense of basically demarcating who we think of as a member of society at all, right. Who, who mm -hmm. has like worth and value in their life. And, um, one of the things that we're kind of trying to do is, um, the, the reason that we focus so much on this idea of the surplus population, but also about this sort of fantasy that some people are, uh, inherently vulnerable and other people are, uh, are inherently less vulnerable or not vulnerable or just, you know, healthy or, or, um, again, inherently healthy, inherently unhealthy, something like that. Um, all of these ways that we sort of, um, sort and certify, um, these people serves really to create this social and also very real, very, um, you know, almost literal, uh, as a, as a, when it interacts with the state capacity, um, legal and administrative separation between these people who, between sets of people who could otherwise possibly, um, one, both see themselves more as a sort of solidaristic collectivity and two, um, 
where they are kind of their wants or needs really are often leveraged against each other um, when it comes to setting or discussing social policy um, and how if we're going to imagine something um, for instance much grander than um, some of the things for instance that like the left has uh, proposed for uh, policy wise on health health care but also on certain types of social spending things like that that we have to um, understand that so many of these deservingness frameworks that we're talking about um, are fundamentally tools that are used by and for capital. They're definitions that exist really to further um, the capitalist project. Yeah, there's um, you know, one of the really interesting things in this section um, on surplus that runs through it is this is instead of focusing on you know, who gets, who's, who's killed or who's left to die, who's kept alive in the systems to do that. Because I, you know, as you, as you talked about it and as you and you'll talk about in the, in the chapter, it makes plain or raises and shifts things into a very visible way that this constructed preference for standardization and biocertification arises out of the imbrication of health and capital. If the economy of health is to be bled for excess profit, then the fundamentally inefficient process of facilitating our mutual survival must be made to be efficient. The modern welfare state measures and quantifies metrics of individual health against a picture of individuals' economic resources and labor power in order to restrict the administration of aid. And, you know, I, I would love to hear also more about this the where this this line of thinking ends up taking us with regards to the surplus when we see okay we have welfare systems that um are very are, are very particular about quantifying your relationship to work so that they can minimize the amount of aid that you get but in a way that's enough to keep you working or keep you connected to the economy or have you you know prostrate before a firm that would then be able to to figure out how to you know make money off or profit off of maiming and continuing harm, and then, and, and and what that does in in enlarging, right, or deepening our understanding of surplus as well, too. Yeah, I mean, I think so. The idea of biocertification that that you mentioned in there is this idea that there is a way to um, either biologically or through you know systems of evaluating. Um, again, sort of comparing someone's life circumstances to their economic resources, perhaps, um, that there's a way that we can sort of, uh, we, we tell ourselves that there's a way that we can discern between who is surplus and who is sort of, um, you know, a maybe someone who's malingering, who doesn't deserve benefits, doesn't deserve help, who's faking, whatever, you know, um, who should be working. And there are many ways that this is sort of iterated throughout administrative law, particularly in the United States. And the idea of biocertification is that, you know, that these identities are somehow fixed and verifiable and that we can... Um, discern and sort between these different categories. And fundamentally, the idea that you could sort of actually bifurcate the population into workers and surplus is actually false, right? And, and these distinctions, as they're stood up, they really do, um, as you're saying, they serve to either artificially limit the pool of people who might be able to access a certain type of program. They perhaps will 
put uh, administrative burdens on the person who is accessing the program, which is another way of sort of limiting the demand for without limiting the need itself. And so what's really sort of important to understand is that these distinctions, they are, they are sort of social constructions, right? But most importantly, they're political and structural constructions. And they live in welfare policy, in um, administrative law, in employment practices, and ultimately what this system of biocertification is intended to do is to create a body politic or like a we of the nation that only includes the sort of healthy and productive workers. And it's a way of separating out those sort of people who are considered non-productive for whatever reason and sort of siloing them off and marking them to be made of use to the economic order in other ways. And, you know, this is something that I think, you know, ultimately, obviously, you know, it has a lot to do with disability and people think about disability really centrally, but disability is, you know, itself a kind of legal construction. It is, it has an identity, you know, beyond the law, but so much of how we're taught to think about who sort of deserves support as a disabled person is dictated by these regimes of biocertification, things like SSDI. And what we're seeing right now, for example, um, you know, the example of long COVID is unfortunately really sort of making this very obvious where you have people who are saying, oh, well, you know, long COVID's not really that big of a deal because we haven't seen SSDI claims go up yet. You know, we haven't seen the kind of documentation there in people's patient records to show that long COVID is, you know, increasing the disability burden, so to speak, on the, the population. But what that ignores is all of the steps that you need to go through in order to be certified sick enough to even apply for disability in the first place. So this idea of like, oh, well, we can tell who's deserving and who's not deserving by using things like biocertification. And biocertification is a broad idea. You know, it also encompasses, you know, practices like security practices like fingerprinting or DNA testing. Um, but, you know, this is more sort of thinking about it in terms of the kind of medical record documentation that might support someone's claim for a need or support from the state. So the idea of like someone being able to be certified as truly surplus or truly in need is predicated on their ability to access healthcare in the first place. So if you if you have no uh, chance of being able to see a primary care doctor, if you don't have the resources to put the time and money into building up that kind of medical record, you're never going to have that quote-unquote tangible real proof that's needed to prove that you are deserving or sick enough or in need of state support um, in any capacity. And so it's a really sort of false idea of being able to, um, it's kind of like a fantasy of competency of the state and a fantasy of competency of technology, right? That we have the ability to sort of at a population level, optimize and sort people according to their needs. And ultimately, that system of sorting is always going to be downstream of someone's initial access to care and the social determinants and structural determinants that are going to influence their life and their quote-unquote health. 
Yeah, I mean, on this about the the kind of systems of biocertification as well. You know, what's really crucial here um, is that you know the these systems and the the metrics uh, that they put forward, right? Like, you know, uh, listeners of TMK know that my day job is studying the political economy of insurance and insure tech. And so what that means is that I, uh, essentially am engaging every single day with systems of risk management, mitigation and prevention. Right. And, and, you know, if you listen to the insurers and the insurance companies and their agents, you know, they use the term risk as if it were uh, an objective measure of natural phenomenon, right? Like risk is something that exists out there in the world or riskiness is something that is a, a kind of a, a feature uh, of, of a person or a process or a thing or something like that. Um, and we see the same exact thing with the ways that these systems of biocertification treat concepts like health or sickness or disability as if they were just these like objective uh, found measures of natural phenomenon rather than, you know, what they actually are is, you know, these, as you've been, as you've been laying out, right, these highly subjective constructed along that, you know, measures that follow very closely to, uh, you know, already existing structural imperatives and, and subjective biases and political economic interest and, you know, these kinds of things. Um, but there, there, you know, there's something very powerful about construct, about creating these as these kind of systems, these kind of scientific, technological, biological systems that can then be used in the production of um, all kinds of, of, uh, of, of uh, uh, profit-making activities, but also all kinds of different populations, right? And I think this is one of the kind of crucial arguments you make in your book is pointing out an essential contradiction, as you call it, where the to quote you, the surplus are at once nothing and everything to capitalism, right? So maybe you could talk a little bit more about that and about your concept of extractive abandonment building on uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore's concept of organized abandonment and that, you know, the surplus uh, is not just this like, you know, a waste population, as you write, you know, this kind of thing that just uh, a group of people that languish uh, in the outskirts of society, uh, you know, never interacting with uh, the system itself, but are instead uh, a crucial um, kind of resource to capitalism. Absolutely. And I think this has been really visible during uh, COVID, especially, uh, frankly. I mean, if you think about all of the ways that it has been, j just the way in general, both from a sort of state and policy level to a sort of just cultural level or the things that someone like David Leonhardt or something um, printed, there's this like idea that the, that the, the surplus, um, the vulnerable, whoever, they just kind of exist elsewhere, right? They like don't live in society. They not only don't belong to, but they're sort of not allowed entry into society. Um, even if you sort of think, um, uh, what, what's a good example? You know, you can simultaneously be sort of aware, oh, there's like a big outbreak of, you know, um, COVID in nursing homes and, oh, woe, you know, woe is 
that population or or whatever. But then you know it doesn't affect me and me uh, going to. Um, you mentioned risk scores, so I'm just thinking of like the way that the entire COVID conversation, in a way that reflects, I think, some of the things that we're critiquing about how um, health is talked about under capitalism um, in this book. Um, how the entire conversation about COVID has um, become over the last, you know, year and a half, especially, um, or was was until it basically was entirely sociologically normalized, um, was. Uh, up until the point where it was kind of declared over or whatever, um, talked about as a matter of like calculating your own personal risk score and actually, you know, in a way like being the, I guess in the same way that like, um, you know, there's like a little, uh, like boss figure or something sitting in your head all the time, uh, <laughs> or like the cop in your head that you need to kill. Like it's like the insurance adjuster in your head that you're supposed <laughs> yes, to yeah. rely on. I always talk about it as like an actuarial angel sitting on your shoulder, like Jiminy Cricket, <laughs> right. like telling you, you know, don't do that. That's bad. <laughs> and, um, and so like, I think, uh, I, I'll, I'll leave it to, to be, I think to get into, um, I think be, best describes um what we what we mean by like extractive abandonment specifically but one thing i wanted to say off of off of that question that is like essentially um i think really i mean really one of the reasons that we wrote the book and one of the reasons frankly that we do our project death panel is because um there are there are all of these frameworks right um not just cultural but also administrative and legal um that reinforce this idea that we are identi- we're trying to identify as central to capitalism as necessary for capitalism to function which is the um what we have what could be called for instance the economic valuation of life um this idea that um life has sort of you know a, a value that you can quantify um that thus you know, can make people either deserving or undeserving of uh, care or social supports. Um, for example, you see, um, like when, when the, uh, I, I like to think of like when the Affordable Care Act debates were happening, for example, it was really popular to talk about overutilization of healthcare <laughs> mm-hmm. and this idea um, popularized in part by um figures like atul gawande who then like his his writing literally ended up as um uh the new york times called it required reading in the obama white house um atul gawande whose like entire writing was about like oh you know the problem is the problem first of all is only that healthcare is like too expensive and that healthcare in the United States and presumably elsewhere is so expensive because people use too much of it. And what we're saying, uh, one of the real, real cores of what we're trying to say is in order to move past this, especially when we are talking about, um, you know, um, demands that, uh, the, like the left can leverage over health, healthcare, but also just the form, the shape of capitalism going forward. I think, that these logics of austerity and sort of deservingness are things that we need to really assess and fundamentally do away with because they are sold on this sort of fiction of, again, this quantifiable economic valuation of life, um, these deservingness frameworks, and then also the idea that basically the surplus or those who are 
um, you know, ca- cast out those who are not deserving, essentially. The idea that the surplus are then just sort of swept away or gone or something. Whereas what we're trying to point to is, um, and I guess I'll pass it to be here in a second. <laughs> what we're trying to point to is in fact, there are these whole administrative systems that exist, um, not to catch them in the way that we like to sort of think of in this imagination of a welfare state, like the American welfare state that doesn't actually exist. Like we, we think of this social safety net as something that, uh, well, not all of us think, but like many people think of the social safety net, uh, as this thing that will like catch you if, you know, something bad enough befalls you or whatever. Whereas it's essentially, you know, a net entirely, almost entire, a, a net, almost entirely of holes, I suppose. Um, but instead, it's not you know it's these systems essentially catch um, people not necessarily for uh, you know su- supporting them, but catch people um, in a way where they become sort of in the same sense that um, you know we're very familiar with the idea of uh, someone of like a, a boss or a company extracting your surplus labor um, that people then often uh will end up in sites that are essentially built to you know bleed what they can from you know the stone essentially that is this person who has been systematically abandoned by the state yeah i mean if we think about you know what the distinction is between surplus and worker right on one hand the worker is supposed to basically be able to sell their health almost, sell their labor power um, to create surplus profit for bosses. And the surplus population cannot or is prohibited in some capacity, uh, whether that's because of like social barriers or because they, you know, can't work or whatever. So the idea is that 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 kind of distinction is that there's surplus value to be only gained from workers and not from anyone else. And that's sort of where all surplus value comes from. But the truth of the matter is, and we know this from all sorts of of work, whether it's uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore's work, looking at the expansion of uh, prisons and um, jails as a way of building state capacity, or people like Jim Downs's work, looking at the certification of citizenship uh, during like the during the period after um, the Civil War, where you have people who were essentially promised citizenship in exchange for abandoning and risking their lives to abandon their plantations that they were being enslaved on in order to like fight for the Union Army. And these are people who are like really just putting so much on the line. Um, and that the promise that the North sort of gave them during the Civil War was that, oh, and at the end of the war, we're going to make you a citizen with the full rights of citizenship. Well, of course, when the war ended, what the U.S. government did is it said, well, you know, what if we only allow the people who are not disabled to be citizens? You know, what if the only freed people who are allowed to become part of the state are those that we can be sure will not be dependent? And so there was this sort of system set up where we had basically promised not only citizenship to people, but... um, that there would be uh, essentially care homes for people as well. And we talk about this story of um, 
Amelia Stewart, which comes from Jim Downs's work in, in the archive, where, you know, she says, she writes to the U.S. government and she says, you know, my husband, who's a disabled veteran, you know, we need placement in this care home that has been set up specifically for freed people who are, you know, veterans who have passed the test to prove beyond a shadow of the doubt that they were, you know, disabled by the war and not previously disabled. And so, you know, we we would be happy to have the government come and inspect us and so we can attest to our need. Um, and of course they do. And the reason why that, that system of inspection is basically set up is because the the care that was promised was never supposed to actually um, be as generous as it was promised, right? It was set up artificially as a way to limit demand. Um, and so we see iterations of this that happen throughout many different moments in history, but that particularly hinge, especially on moments where you see care intersect with economies of scale. And, um, you know, this is where we sort of, this is where extractive abandonment really comes in. And we're working and building on Ruthie's work, which is, you know, looking at how, um, how like in particular the state of California makes some very specific decisions to start investing in communities through building up the prison apparatus. You know, we're, we're deciding that we're going to sort of create jobs and create surplus capacity, turn land that's not being used for the military industrial complex and manufacturing anymore. And we're going to turn this into, you know, land that's being used to warehouse people and to sort of pass money through the state and build wealth, so to, so to speak, through building up that kind of infrastructure. And this is something you also see, uh, especially in nursing homes. Um, and this is where the work of Marta Russell, who's a late disability theorist and Marxist comes in. And her idea of the money model of disability is that, you know, in all of these sort of quote unquote care relationships, there is a fundamental principle of extraction. You know, a, a, a care relationship might be sort of seen as being, you know, uh, something that that's like, okay, like, for example, I'm, I'm disabled, I'm chronically ill, like, I uh, am considered to be a drain on society, because I do not work, but my body and my needs and my survival needs, like, quote, unquote, creates jobs, right? Like, doctors, hospitals, infusion companies, nurses, pharmaceutical companies, all of the different things that go into you know, keeping someone alive and keeping someone uh, sort of maintaining the surplus, right? We think about these things as almost not as that money just sort of disappearing or or not sort of being some real contribution to society in some respect. But ultimately, what we see is that not only does this process happen to um, disabled people, like Marta Russell um, points out in her money model, and not only is this happening specifically within the construction of sort of state bond schemes in the neoliberal era, um, as, as Ruthie's work points out, this is also the way that health systems are constructed, right? Which is that we have the, the kind of burden and the onerous on the individual health is thought of as an individual phenomenon and something that is intrinsic, right? And that can be proven and that needs to be verified and documented by 
an authority system, you know, and this goes back, you know, not, this is not sort of a, a function of health insurance. Even this goes way back to earlier systems that predate health insurance and things like this idea of like who counts as a citizen and who, who can be a part of the body politic, because the idea is that, you know, if we have too many burdens as a part of the body politic, then we'll have a sort of fundamentally sick society that can't reproduce itself. It's a very eugenic idea about, um, you know, a kind of apocalypse of need that, that we can't, you know, cross some sort of threshold. And ultimately, like, what all of these distinctions actually are, are artificial scarcity that are put into place, um, you know, often influenced by the by the values of racial capitalism that are embedded within our institutions. And it's ultimately how all health is managed and set up as well. So we might think of health as being something that each of us kind of possesses um, or has as, you know, a different sort of uh, matrix. Maybe, you know, if you think about health, you might think about like your BMI or what your blood pressure is or what medications you're on. But ultimately, you know, what, happens is that all of these kinds of ways of like managing the population at a demographic level, the managing of your own labor power is the maintenance of your health. And this is ultimately set up to be extracted from and profited from at every step of the way, whether that's a PBM or a hospital or a nursing home or getting drug tested for a job application, every single moment where your health is sort of constructed as a phenomenon is also a point of extraction and serves to sort of perpetuate a entire economy that, um, you know, is billions of dollars that sort of flows through the surplus population, but also everyone. And, and we really think of like health expenditures, right, as being a burden. Like when we talk about, um, healthcare reform, one of the biggest things that people talk about is, oh my gosh, we have to get the cost of healthcare down, right? But like spending a lot of money on healthcare. Or like, oh, you're just going to change one fifth of the, you're going to throw one fifth of the U.S. economy as, uh, out or something, which was like the conversation around Medicare for all in, in 2020. <laughs> right. You know, and, and these are all sort of like state capacities that are organized around essentially extracting and abandoning these populations, um, finding ways to sort of maximize, whether that's through insurance regimes, the, the sort of ways that physician and uh, provider labor has changed around, you know, billing codes being, you know, a huge part of uh, clinical hours in general. But it's something that also is fundamental to the structure of how we think of citizenship, you know, to be a citizen is to be making oneself available for extractive abandonment, to be sort of lending your body to build the economy, and that this is sort of, you know, uh, considered to be a right and a privilege. Um, you know, unlike Ed and Jason, I'm not a, a journalist or an academic. However, I did spend 20 years working in healthcare, primarily in like medical equipment and uh, assistive uh, technology. Uh, you know, wheelchairs, things along those lines. And honestly, if like, if I had my hands on this book 10 years ago, I probably would have suffered the crisis of conscious that eventually I came around to when I was realizing that, you know, the employer I was working for where I was doing repairs for people's equipment 
Uh, we're charging people without insurance or without uh, uh, sufficient insurance $150 an hour for repairs. And, and then on top of that, whatever parts were required. And then it just, you know, leads on from, from there to like you were saying with uh, long-term, long-term care facilities where you've got CNAs that are, you know, they pay, uh, they pay money to go take a class and then they're expected to make barely over minimum wage for what essentially is, you know, being a full-time caretaker of someone they don't know. Uh, and those facilities make so much money from all that. It's brutal work. Um, yeah. CNA is a certified nursing assistant for listeners. And I mean, I feel like this book is just required reading for anyone that decides they want to go into the healthcare industry, whether it be working for an insurance or as a caretaker, et cetera. Yeah, my mom has just started reading it. Actually, I gave it to her after I finished. Um, Hell yeah. My, my mom is a CNA um, and has that, you know, she's been doing the schooling. She's been sh shifting, tried to make her own agency, has shifted around also as the relationship to or the type of people that she's taking, you know, care of or the type of facility she's working in has shifted and growing with like a has have has felt a growing sense of you know disdain for parts of the work but i think that you know one thing that really what she told me resonates i think she's on like chapter three right now is is this argument what we're talking about about the, the ways in which also these surplus populations do get the, the way that we start talking about them immediately ha starts to have, or usually in, in a lot of the reform movements, starts to have the eugenic burden and the public debt burden that y'all are talking about, and how easily that can derail any attempt or any effort to imagine what a different system might look like and what a health system might look like wh where there's no room for capital or finance, or and how those burdens kind of obscure the role the, that that finance and, and capital and the political economy have right now uh, do in shaping the health system. So maybe I, I would I'd be really interested. And also, I feel like this leads us perfectly to talking then about about waste. And now that we we've been thinking about extractive abandonment, right, and 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 ways in which waste is used, both to like you know defend or draw battle lines to defend healthcare system as it is or propose alternatives that don't really go far enough or that don't propose the real break that you would like to see with health communism. I want to jump in and add to that really quick because, uh, you know, this is perfect podcaster synergy. These are, this is exactly where my <laughs> mind was at too. Um, and I just want to add that, yeah, let's get into the, the eugenic slash debt burden kind of discourse and the, the productivity of that discourse for the kind of maintenance uh, and optimization of extractive abandonment and the creation of surplus, but also like, you know, th this is, uh, it's, it's nonstop. I mean, I, just by sheer coincidence, I woke up this morning uh, to, you know, an article in the Australian ABC talking about how upwards of 30% of the cost of Medicare, which is our, uh, you know, Medicare for all kind of a, you know, social policy, not the same thing as Medicare by the same name in the U.S., but, you know, the Australian Medicare upwards 30% of the cost can be, you know, associated with quote unquote waste and fraud, right? <laughs> uh, and, and like yeah. this, you know, so just sheer coincidence there, but then it's also like, like um, there's an occasional 
resurgence of uh, of, of investigations and articles and attention about things like, you know, talking about nursing homes. The New Yorker had a really good and heartbreaking piece about um, the private equity takeover and management of nursing homes and, you know, just tr the, the total extraction, but also, you know, along with that, the absolute sudden and stark decline in, uh, in, in, you know, people in living, uh, right. You know, the rates of living in nursing homes, <laughs> death rates, in other words, um, let alone the, 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 you know, the care. And that's to be, that's the, that's private equity 101, right? Like that's what they do in any industry that they take over. And the health is a very productive industry, but also the New York Times had a really long piece like last week about um, how insurers have gained billions and billions of dollars in profit through Medicare fraud and particularly Medicare Advantage, the privatized Medicare. Um, and, and so, you know, you get this kind of every once in a while people having this resurgence of attention about like how how these these systems actually work and how they're designed to work. You know, this is not like an accident that the insurance companies are getting billions of dollars through overcoding or fraudulent coding or bribing doctors or, you know, that the same thing happens with other systems where, you know, I, I, I heard about another system recently that was meant to like give an advantage to uh, some, you know, uh, hospital in a low income community where they could get uh, drug price, you know, drugs from the manufacturers for essentially like no cost, right? Just at cost. And then, but then of course they were turning around and selling those drugs at like normal markup prices. And so it was just like, they were making, you know, thousand times X profit on drugs. And, you know, it's like these systems, uh, they, they get, you know, Sometimes the attention of who's doing fraud and waste gets turned towards the people actually profiting, the insurance companies, the pharmaceutical companies, the for-profit hospitals, and so on. And then it just seems to go away. Everyone gets outraged a little bit. They say, wow, that, that's really wild that that happens. Um, that's wild that my grandma died because a private equity firm took over the nursing home or something. And then it just like nothing changes in the system. The attention just kind of goes away. And I think this goes into what you're talking about. Like, you know, people don't associate themselves with the surplus, um, that they could be old or sick or subjected to these systems. And instead, what never goes away is the, the, the constant simmer of fraud and waste is something they do. The surplus does on our productive system, right? Like even though none, the numbers don't ever bear out that like, uh, I, you know, no, no, no poor uh, family is making billions of dollars in profit by doing like fraudulent Medicare, whatever. Um, but, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, talk about that in relation to this eugenic debt burden about like, at what who gets who's on the, the 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 wrong end of the barrel of the gun when it uh more often than not um and, and, you know with the accusation of who's doing fraud and waste before we uh, move on to that real quick i i just i i want to make clear that extractive abandonment doesn't just happen to the patients and it happens to the workers 
the care workers too. This is about squeezing efficiency and profit, not just out of the austerity applied to the people receiving care, but to the people whose bodies are destroyed because of the circumstances of how care is delivered. And I think that that's, that's something that I sort of neglected to, to frame because it, it's important for us to not just consider um, you know, healthcare workers as being uh, not patients themselves, but also that the actual sites of their labor, the extractive abandonment as it's applied universally to these circumstances, right? Like this is about squeezing profit and abandoning not just the patients and not just the people in care homes or going to be in care homes or who need the care, but the people who are providing it as well. It's, it's a kind of unilateral process that might seem like it's applied by bad actors and mean nurses or bad doctors or whatever to patients, but it's actually something that's applied across the board on both sides of right. the equation. Well, and also even with this uh, dichotomy between like private a private equity run nurse home nursing home and a uh, I don't know otherwise owned nursing home. I mean, you're completely right. For example, to mention that like private equity owned nursing homes, just like private equity owned emergency rooms, private equity owned everything <laughs> is uh, fucking terrible. Um, and, you know, certainly worse, but also, you know, one of the things that we try to, I think, point out in the book too, is how, for example, some of these sites where extractive abandonment happens like nursing homes, um, are in a lot of sense, uh, are in many senses, a continuation of sort of the old asylum system, um, and are in many senses still very carceral locations, um, in the same way that the old asylums were essentially. Um, and this is, you know, maybe a, a broader or, um, um, you know, some, something for a different uh, or bigger conversation or, um, or, by, or, you know, by, by the book and, and read uh, more about uh, the specific, the, the chapter madness. But um, I think there, you know, there, there's so much in what you, you all were asking. And so I wanted to, I, I, I want to say, I guess one of the things that the main thing was that ma this makes me think of is like, this really gets, I think, to one of the big reasons that we wrote the book in the first place, which is, I think, uh, well, a, a couple of things on one hand, I could say like right now I feel is a very important contestational moment for health and healthcare or for healthcare and health rather, I suppose, um, in that, um, or, or should be a big moment of contestation, a, a big moment, f uh, where we could have a huge realignment or re under like a, a change in our understanding of how we can agitate around these things and how we can understand, um, at, at the very least, how we can understand healthcare. Um, on the other hand, looking into the history of it, it is, I feel such that, that healthcare and health is such a underutilized and underfocused uh, avenue of agitation and struggle, particularly for the left. Um, when we, you know, in a lot of the research that um, we did looking back at some of the history that we talk about in this book um, and, you know, things that we were reading outside of it too, that, you know, things that didn't end up um, in the book, it is, 
quite sad actually to look, you know, a hundred years back and see people saying like uh, essentially a very similar thing uh, about like why we might want um, some form of whether they call it socialized medicine or universal healthcare or, or whatever um, on an argument of like, Oh, maybe it'll be cheaper. Like maybe we can do it more efficiently then, or um, then everyone will have it. And so, and so it will be cheaper or something or um, arguments of trying to prove like, well, uh, this will lead to fewer sick people, which is, you know, this is a complicated thing to to get into because, of course, like if we had uh, universal healthcare or socialized medicine, certainly people's quality of life would be better. That doesn't that isn't going to eliminate illness or disability, nor should it necessarily. I mean, this is obviously like in the case of um, illness, we want to reduce the amount of illness that there is in the world, but like the but you know, people fundamentally are going to get sick, whether that's something communicable like COVID, um, which we can do things about, or whether that is something that we really can't do anything about, like the condition that B has, frankly, which is you know you wouldn't be able to stop that with socialized medicine, right? And so it's it's frustrating to think about that history and then look also at um, you know our moment right now where. Um, and again, this is, I think a lot of the thinking that we were doing going into why we wrote the book, like our moment right now is one where, you know, for example, the NHS in the UK is being further privatized. Um, the, uh, you know, there are countless other examples of further privatization. Um, for instance, like a lot in the global South, um, like in a lot of many different countries in the global South, um, have been, you know, uh, undergoing a steady march of further privatization for decades. Um, you mentioned Medicare Advantage earlier. Um, I mean, as of next year, it is um, projected that for the first time ever, Medicare Advantage plans, which, as you mentioned, are the private arm of Medicare, as in like the, you know, the the privatized shitty version of uh, Medicare, essentially that uh, that was created essentially to fuel industry profits. Um, that will, for the first time, be fifty percent or over fifty percent of. Medicare enrollment, and that's like total enrollment. That's everyone who has a Medicare plan. So fucking terrifying. Our own, you know, social welfare systems that many of which are already shitty and privatized um, are actively, uh, especially in the case of something like Medicare, that's you know crossing. That is about to cross the transom into basically majority um, private industry um, uh, managed and. You know, I don't want to just how to put it. It's tricky because on one hand, it's like oh, you could say like oh, all these bad these bad actors, all these bad private companies, and that's true. But it's also very important to just remember and recognize it is the state that is putting these policies into place that allows for the creation of the private equity firms that allows for and in many cases incentivizes the. Uh, creation of um either like as i was saying the private like private equity firms to buy nursing homes or um insurance companies to get into the medicare advantage market because it's lucrative and because the uh you know the the government payments always come on time this is getting rather over long but all of this happening then in a context where even in the 
last uh, the last time that like Medicare for all was like a big focal point, for example, of U.S. political discourse in 2020, there was open discussion among at least certain parts of the left, certainly especially among you know, people I would sort of derisively call like liberals or progressives or whatever about, um, the idea of like, Oh, can't we just allow like private insurance companies to still, you know, be a part of this, um, to still be a part of like a single payer system. And, you know, there unfortunately is very little, um, that says, or there, there, we, you know, we wanted to make sure that there was like something that people could, uh, really read and dig into to understand like, no, that's like, way that should that should not even be part of the conversation like it private insurance companies um private equity firms that like run nursing homes all of these things they do not belong in society we need to move beyond them um and the demands and we need to like shape our uh demands and our movements to recognize that and to move much further to understand that for example um, another thing that was a subject of contestation in the you know 2020 Medicare for all debates, like the idea of um, you know there there were people, uh, for example, like um, you know socialists or whoever saying like, well you know we can't add long term care probably or like uh, long term care is always too expensive, right? And it's, it'll never pass because it's a waste of money, right? And like when we say long term care, that's like stuff like nursing homes and also ideally in-home care, uh, and, and things like that. It's all the stuff that, you know, it's, it is what it says. Like think when you need long-term care, when you, for instance, um, have, uh, you know, have like a illness or are disabled or something in a way that it's just like, that is kind of part of your life, whether for a long period of time or for the rest of it, right. All the care that we somehow, as though we could somehow group all of that side type of care as something that then like the new universal healthcare program wouldn't cover is a fundament is fundamentally sort of buying into these very logics that we're trying to, um, you know, talk about these like eugenic and debt, um, logics that you're pointing out that forestall even sometimes our own imagination, right. When we think about what is possible. And I think just most importantly to sort of lay out what the idea of the eugenic debt burden is, is it's a kind of pervasive myth that people who are waste, like me, <laughs> that I I not only have a kind of negative uh, drain on the people immediately in my life, I need more care, you know, I, I need more support financially because I can't work. Um, you know, I, I take away time that could be used by the people in my life, uh, to sell their surplus labor in order to deliver, you know, care that helps me with my activities of daily living and things like that. You know, the, the idea is that people who are marked as waste, that they not only represent a kind of fundamental vulnerability that is inherent, right? This idea of, um, of a kind of eugenic burden, like genetically that they as people, you know, should not continue if we are to reproduce our society in a way that is sustainable. We cannot allow the reproduction. And this isn't just about like, uh, you know, the attenuation of like reproduction or people being um, sterilized. Like 
this is like, I'm talking like, you know, like, uh, like capitalist reproduction, you know, the, the reproduction of society, social reproduction and fiscal reproduction that in order to sort of free up the healthy people that the people who are unhealthy sort of cannot be, you know, given too much time or resources because the fiscal and eugenic burden that that person uh, sort of constitutes is a threat to the, the survival of the nation. And a lot of people like to nitpick with eugenics and they say, oh, well, eugenics is just about breeding and eugenics is just about, you know, like the, the T4 uh, program or really and the Nazis. And or, like, not e- everything is eugenics. Stop being, right. you know, Eugenics ended in World War <laughs> stop II. Stop being hysterical, <laughs> which is a term I'm not using, gen- you know, whatever. Um, yeah. Using ironically, (laughs) in case anyone's upset with that. The fact of the matter is, is that eugenics made an argument about the survival of the nation hinging on stopping spending money on people who were deemed waste. Whether that was being able to stop spending that money by sterilizing people so they could not reproduce, whether that was being able to stop spending money by, you know, creating economies of scale through the expansion of the asylum and state hospital system, whether that was being able to save money by reducing staff ratios in the 50s by increasing the use of sedation in state hospitals and asylums, or whether that's, you know, policies of direct extermination and elimination and, um, quick death, so to speak. And these are ideas that predate eugenics as an idea. But what the eugenics movement did was cement these practices into a coherent ideology that said the way that we are to survive as a society and not become extinct is by making sure to abandon those who are waste, abandon those who are fiscal and eugenic burdens because we cannot afford psychically, care-wise, or financially to sort of put the burden of illness, disability, and non-normativity, right? Because it's not just people who are sick, it's also people who are queer, it's also indigenous people, it's also black people, it's also people of color, It's about, you know, it is race science ultimately at the end of the day. And they, the idea persisted, right? That, that the survival of the nation of a kind of fit nation required abandonment in order to be built. And so the idea of the kind of population waste or the fiscal eugenic burden as a kind of specter, right? We see this in things like, the myth of the welfare queen or the myth of people who are, you know, doing Medicare fraud or faking a back injury to collect social security disability insurance. But fundamentally these bad actors, right? None of these bad actors are ultimately ever where the real waste, fraud and abuse actually exists, that the waste, fraud, and abuse themselves are capacities for extractive abandonment, that the state enables, you know, us to waste populations, to abuse populations, and to extract from them in order to, in theory, secure the survival of the quote-unquote human race. And this was something that, you know, in the turn of the century, 
people were very obsessed with. And it was an idea about, you know, trying to reduce the amount of money that was being spent on state hospitals and asylums. And the purpose of asylums was to remove people from the community to free up care labor to be put back into industry, right? So ultimately, even though there has been a process of deinstitutionalization and we have closed many of these large facilities, what actually happened um, over the course of, uh, you know, decades starting in the 1950s is in the United States and internationally, what was a sort of centrally funded uh, state system became a series of decentralized, smaller public-private partnerships. And so we went from state asylum to nursing home to group homes and home and community-based care, but as a spectrum, ultimately, the logic of extraction and the carceral logic of human waste being a fiscal and eugenic burden that can not be, quote-unquote, reclaimed um, or rehabilitated to... Um, make quote-unquote productive people out of the human waste, that this is a logic that persists and has actually expanded since the closure of many of the large state hospitals. It's the same kind of thing where you hear like, you know, oh, the problem is just private prisons. Like, no, the problem is all fucking prisons, mm -hmm. right? And it's jails and it's pretrial detention and it's bail and it's bond and it's police and it's, you know, ticketing and all of the ways that we have decided to orient our state capacities, not through creating capacities for distributing resources or meeting needs or supporting people. It's, you know, capacities for surveillance, policing, and extraction. So much there, and I know we're running up on time, so I, I want to start bringing us to, to a close here. I mean, we could talk about this for forever. Uh, all, all the more reason for people to go out and, and get a copy of Health Communism. It's a, it's a fantastic book, but, you know, I, I think to bookend our conversation here, you know, one of the, one of the arguments you make so, so powerfully in the book just now, um, and that I want to reiterate is this idea of, uh, that we are essentially all, you know, beings towards surplus, right? Like, like we are, we are always on the cut. If you're not already, uh, labeled as surplus or as waste or as a, as a, a eugenic or fiscal burden on society, just wait. Just wait a little while and, and you too will be on the cusp of that label, um, whether just through, through time, uh, you know, sickness or technology, right? I often think in these instances of, um, there's a, a great quote by the legal scholar Tom Baker, who's one of the kind of leading, um, critical legal scholars of insurance and insurance law. And in an article he wrote about adverse selection and genetic discrimination, uh, you know, he, he said, you know, uh, quote, 
or rather, while some quote-unquote low-risk individuals may believe that they are benefited by risk classification, any particular individual is only one technological innovation away from losing their privileged status, right? And this was a lot of the worries, you know, 20 years ago when genetic testing and genetic discrimination was coming on the scene in insurance. People that thought they were privileged in society, not just uh, workers, but productive uh, workers, you know, what if there's something that's part of them that, you know, is not behavioral, is not a choice, it's not a uh, social determinant, but it's just uh, some genetic fluke that could cause them to lose their insurance or, or something like that. That doesn't seem fair. Hey, wait a minute, I'm not surplus. You know, like those are the kinds of discussions that people had to confront uh, based on uh, you know the the essentially the realization that the surplus can come for any of us at any moment, right? If it hasn't already come for you, and and I think this is a really powerful argument you make here, and this is where the kind of the the title of the book, health communism, gets to. Right on one hand, it is meant to I think poses a foil to the way in which health. Is a is a, is a the way we understand it now as a concept created by and for capitalism. Um, it's used as a tool uh, under capitalism. You know, health is a feature of good workers. You know, workers need health, and you need health systems to keep workers healthy. In other words, so they can be productive, but not too healthy. You know, that because then they might start getting a little uppity or they might start getting ideas about things. And so you have to kind of balance the need for for profitable, productive workers while also balancing the need of having workers always on the cusp of being unhealthy, of being surplus, of being sick or ill, or managing and maintaining their illness. You know, this is essentially the emergency room model of healthcare um, that the U.S. has uh, perfected, right? And so, health communism then is both highlighting that foil, but then presenting an alternative way of understanding what health should be. And I, I you know, I in, I started the episode by quoting from the the end of the book. I want to. Uh, bring us to an end by quoting from the beginning of, of the book. <laughs> so you, you write in the introduction, quote, we propose our own lens by which health is reclaimed, not just for workers, but also for those marked as surplus for all people health communism. We articulate how health is wielded by capital to cleave apart populations, separating the deserving from the undeserving, the redeemable from the irredeemable, those who would consider themselves workers from the vast spoiled surplus classes. We assert that only through shattering these deeply sociologically ingrained binaries is the abolition of capitalism possible. The contours of capitalism have formed around health to the point that they have come to appear inextricable from each other. Health communism aims to sever these bonds. As we will discuss, to do so is not only to remove one of capital's principal tools, but also to separate capital from its host. So with that, I want to throw it back over to, to B and Artie. Say, you know, do you have any closing thoughts to leave us on? And also, where can people find you and your work? I would just say that it's really important to understand that under capitalism, health is an impossibility, right? It's an aspirational frame. 
and it cannot be separated from the ways that we are um, sort of forced to engage in the economy of maintaining our health as it is essentially for many people, it is their only quote unquote property, right? It is their labor power. Our health is our labor power. And part of what we argue in the book um, is that there is only so far you can push and extract from a population until it cannot reproduce itself. There is no supply. There is no real surplus reserve army waiting. There is no body of healthy workers waiting to be tapped into once we burn through all of the workers and all of the surplus. And these are the kinds of ideas that capitalism likes to brush under the rug, you know, the idea that line constantly go up, you know, that there can be perpetual growth and that that can come through the optimization of the population at a demographic level that we can just optimize and surveil our way towards a, you know, better, more productive growth while still, you know, uh, destroying the environment, making people sick and sicker through the conditions of work and treating them as waste, right? And treating them as not people, but as fiscal and eugenic burdens. And so it's important to understand that one of the most important things that we try and show in the book is that for all that health capitalism says, it doesn't give a shit if you live or die. There is a fundamental breaking point in that we are all sick under capitalism, whether you are as sick as I am, or you think that you're healthy, or you, you know, you uh, identify as healthy, right? That health is actually not something that you can have under capitalism, because health requires a kind of security and support and access to resources to survive and uh, frankly, uh, an absence of policing that we we do not have. And so anyone that thinks that they are healthy, um, they actually are just, you know, bought into the myth that capitalism is selling. And so one of the most important things I think we can recognize is to stop identifying as healthy and start to identify ourselves as all surplus, whether we're workers or not, because the binary between worker and surplus is fake. I was a worker until I was made so sick by work, I couldn't work anymore. And I think that these are really important things to understand is that it's not just a new way of thinking about health, but that this is a way to destabilize uh, capitalism itself. Yeah, I would just add um, briefly, I suppose, um, I appreciated the comment that you made about the multiple valences of health communism as a term. There's potentially another one in the fact that, you know, I think one of the things that we try to point out is that while, you know, as defined under capitalism, health is something that we are sort of taught to think of as an individual trait, as a possession it is in fact much more of a communal thing that health is about our collective health. Health is about, and health is fundamentally impacted by collective things. There's no way to separate your health from society at large, from politics, from anything like that. Part of the project of this book, what I hope that people get out of it is that 
there are very few things that I, I think you could generally say about people about living or whatever that is that are, that are in some way, I hesitate to use this term, but in some way universal, right? One of them is our collective impermanence, our collective fragility, you know, the fact that as, you know, B mentioned before, if we are lucky enough to, we will all get old. If whether we are lucky enough to or not, or whatever, you know, some of us are born sick, born disabled. Some of us, um, you know, become disabled or sick during our life course, et cetera, et cetera. It is, as universal as anything you could possibly hope to imagine um, could be for people. And yet that fact is a pretty significant thing that capitalism asks us constantly to turn away from and to ignore. Um, The capitalist state in the United States certainly rushed us back to workplaces, to unsafe workplaces during COVID before there was even a vaccine or anything um, constantly before something like COVID you are, you know, compelled even if you just have like a cold or something to get back to work as quickly as fucking possible or it's your problem, right? We are asked constantly to make this not about the collectivity and to make this exclusively sort of about us and what, we are what we must be made to do in order to not be seen as this burden or this waste. Right. And so, yeah, I, I, and so I hope essentially, um, that we can kind of recognize that that collective vulnerability, that collective impermanence is something really that we can shape a very radical vision of an anti anti austerity and an anti-capitalist politics around, Um, or if not around, then it must be present or frankly, if these logics of austerity and value, you know, valuation of life and worth and burden and things like that are brought into anything putatively imagined as liberatory, it's not going to work. Yeah. I mean, our fragile bodies are also the biggest threat to capitalism at the end of the day. And um, really appreciate this conversation, by the way. This has been awesome. And Yeah, thank um, you for having us. Really, it's it's so great to just be able to talk about the book in depth with y'all and engage with it in this way and, and talk specifically also, um, especially about how care labor factors into it too, because I think that's so important, just the way that that, that population is both demonized and then you know, just chewed up and spit out by systems of extractive abandonment. And it's, you know, it's really important, I think, to also think of health communism as forging a solidarity that works against the kinds of social divisions that say that patient and provider should not be collaborators. Yes. Hmm. That's definitely one of the things I really did enjoy about this, um, reading reading this and i will and i also got to say if you're listening to this like we didn't even, we didn't even get to there are a lot of like really juicy bits in here uh, i knew we were not going to be able to get to spk for example spk was a really like 
never I've never heard of it. I'm sure like most people I have not come across a, a, a good deal of the literature around this. And it was really fascinating to read their manifesto and the essays that they've been talking about in their illness framework. But also like going back to what you're saying, like the discussion that we're having about um surplus and waste uh you know i mean yeah we could do like a two-parter also talking <laughs> building up more on it and on the political economy and in, and the inversion of it that you all advocate for but that also just want to reiterate the book is really really amazing like a like a getting doused with like very cold water and sense of like <laughs> aligning and making clear things that i didn't consider think about or know um Hmm. when it comes to to healthcare and i feel like i've learned uh so much for it like i'm really thankful for it so thanks for coming on and talking with yeah, us yeah 100 really i mean we got we gotta get y'all out of here uh yeah, yeah, but yeah. We, we definitely <laughs> right. need to have you back on to talk about all the stuff we didn't even touch on yeah spk socialist patients claire uh or socialist patients collective um that was such an interesting his case study that that y'all uh dug up and spent a lot of time digging into um and so so yeah jeremy you got any you got something real quick to say before we get them out of here yeah i just wanted to add uh as i was reading through this i would have to i was taking uh uh weed breaks and i was uh, basically uh the the ben affleck meme where he's outside smoking a cigarette <laughs> like having like a Care, care worker like uh, PTSD flashbacks. <laughs> oh, yeah. I got a, I got an email the other day that was like, the book was great, but it doesn't quite approach like a, a pop politics framework. It's very heavy and not for beginners. And I'm like, motherfucker, it's called health communism. <laughs> it's really, you know what you're getting yourself into when you read it. And I applaud you guys. It's very well done. And I mean, Thank there's you. arguments that I will be using in that and my work life as well. Hell yeah. We'll see. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, all right. Well, great. Yeah. Everybody, uh, there'll be links in the episode description uh, for the book on Verso, for uh, Death Panel, uh, the, the podcast that uh, Artie and B co-host um, and, uh, and, and their Twitter accounts as well. So find all of that in the episode description. There'll be links there. Um, this was a real, real joy for us. I'm glad it was for you as well. Um, and I'm sure for all our listeners, um, you can find us as always at patreon.com slash this machine kills, uh, for additional premium episodes every single week. So again, thank you, B and Artie. Um, hope to have you back on again in the future to talk more about all of this because there's there's so many technological angles to this that we didn't even really touch on. Um, but this is consider this the uh, the, the 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 prelude to an eventual uh, investigation into all of that um, in in the future. So thank you again, uh, and uh, thank you all for listening. That's that's TMK. Until next time, later. Adios.
Thank you.